It's, it's good to be back. Uh, you may realize or know or not know that I've come back from a, a, a trip from the Philippines just recently. I was through Singapore for a little bit and uh, up into Malaysia, Kuala Lumpur, and, uh, and of course the Philippines. And I gotta tell you, I did battle with a typhoon and lost. But uh, that's why I was two days late coming back, and that's why I didn't show up last Sunday. I hadn't uh, planned to attend and, and listen to Brian and, and just spend time with you, but uh, God didn't have that in the plans. So uh, thanks for praying, if you did. And if you didn't, well, I'll probably go on another trip sometime when you can. This morning, we're going to be continuing our studies in Paul's second letter to Timothy, in a series entitled, Be Strong in Grace. This is part 53, and entitled, Travelers Took to Winding Paths. And we'll be unpacking 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Over the last two weeks, Brian, has un- Brian unpacked verses 8 to 13 of chapter 2, and-, and shared with us several motivations for sharing the gospel. I hope those got to you like they did to me. But several motivations for sharing the gospel and discipling people as we make our way through life. Of course, Brian was reflecting on the motivations that Paul himself felt as opportunities came his way to share the gospel or disciple someone. As people came into his life, people with whom he could either make small talk or go right to the heart of the matters they needed to hear, they needed to understand. Given the fact that Paul was in prison for sharing the gospel, we might have assumed that Paul's preference would have been to just let the moment pass rather than to engage this person with truth from God's word. After all, it would have been so much simpler and safer for Paul if he had just held his tongue. But Paul was motivated to share the gospel no matter what the consequence, uh, what consequence he might ultimately suffer for his decision to share it. And beyond that, Paul also wanted his dear friend Timothy, his son in the faith, to take the risk and share the gospel as well. And, and uh, we know from three weeks ago that Timothy ended up in jail because he took Paul's challenge. So given the fact that Paul was willing to suffer terrible, terrible life-threatening consequences for sharing the gospel, I think that we would be well within range that it would be very safe for us to say that the gospel was more important to Paul than life itself. And that's why Brian's message, message over these, uh, messages over these past two weeks have been so vitally important for me. I mean, if we could get dialed into Paul's motivation to share the gospel and disciple other people, perhaps we'd be more faithful in sharing the gospel and discipling other people as one day goes to the next, to the next, to the next. I know personally that I need to share the gospel more often and, and that I need to take more time to disciple others than I presently do. And, and so where can I find the courage and motivation that I need to be involved on that level? Where can, how can I make that happen? Well, as Brian pointed out last week, Paul was clear. He was motivated to share the gospel and disciple others because he remembered Jesus and what Jesus did for us. Paul remembered Jesus' finished work. So when it occurs to us that sharing the gospel and discipling others is hard work, maybe that's, that's occurred to you. When it occurs to us that, that sharing the gospel and discipling others is hard work, we can remind ourselves that the real work of the gospel has already been finished by Jesus. And as Brian pointed out two weeks ago, Paul was also motivated to share the gospel and disciple others 
Because even though Paul was in chains, <coughs> he knew that the word of God was not chained. Paul was chained to a Roman soldier all day, every day to keep him from escaping. But Paul used that opportunity to share the gospel with every Roman soldier he met. And it must have seemed to some of those Roman soldiers as time went by that they weren't, must have seemed to them that they weren't chained to the Apostle Paul. Instead, they were chained to the gospel. I mean, you, you talk about a captive audience. And once Paul shared the gospel with that soldier, that soldier then went on and shared it with other soldiers until finally Paul was able to say that even people in Caesar's household had believed. The message, the gospel was spreading everywhere despite the fact that Paul himself was able to go nowhere. But there's more. Brian helped us to understand also that, that Paul was also motivated to share the gospel and disciple others because Paul knew that even if he was killed because of sharing the gospel, the gospel itself would outlive him. And the simple fact that Paul believed that the gospel was worth dying for should motivate us to want to live for that very thing, that very message for that Jesus died to provide for us. Paul was also motivated to share the gospel and, and disciple others because he knew that he had died with Christ. That was one of the things that he said. And that meant that he would also live with him. Paul believed that the gospel would outlive him, but beyond that, he knew that even if sharing the gospel cost him his life, he knew that because of the gospel, death here is only the beginning of life there. But of course, that's only true if we believe the gospel that we're preaching. And that reminds us that Paul was motivated to share the gospel and disciple others because he knew that those who did not believe the gospel will not find a home in heaven. In other words, when it comes to getting into heaven, it doesn't matter how hard I work for Jesus, all that matters is his finished work for me. It's all about Jesus, just like we, we talked about as we had the Lord's Supper this morning. And that's a good thing because even at those moments when I'm working as hard as I can and trying to be as faithful as I can possibly be, I have to recognize that I can personally contain faithfulness, but I will not always be faithful. I do have my moments. But the sweet truth is God does not contain faithfulness. God is faithful. My salvation today is based on his finished work. And on his absolute faithfulness to keep all of his promises and to do exactly as he has said he will do. And I have to remind myself that, that since these things are all things that I have for myself, I should be motivated to want those same things for everyone that I meet, everyone that I know, especially everyone that I love. And because I'm motivated by all that, I want to be more and more faithful and more effective in sharing the Gospels and, and, to, and making disciples so that when my time here on earth is over, and who knows how much longer I'm going to last at this pace, when my time here on earth is over, I can lay down and rest with confidence that my life meant something, that my life mattered in what matters most, the Gospel and making disciples. So... Once again, to quote Brian, who are you meeting with? And yeah, I know that's grammatically incorrect, but with whom are you meeting just doesn't make a good motto or a good bumper sticker. So, you know, if you're thinking about doing that, don't be grammatically correct. What we're really asking is, on whom are you relying to help you to grow and to keep you on track? Whom are you discipling and who is discipling you? I want to thank Brian. He's not here this morning, I don't believe, but I want to thank him for 
for meeting with us and taking the time to teach us those things about motivation. And I hope that you dug in deep to those motivations and, and, uh, and that they're, they're, you've made them part of your life today. And uh, to all of us this morning, I want to say let's take this seriously. Let's stop giving mere mental assent to the stats on the back of Jesus' baseball card. I loved that, I loved that illustration that Brian gave. Let's stop making mental assent to, to all of that. And, 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 and instead, let's enter deeply into the life that he's designed us to live by his grace. As we move on this morning, Paul's going to give us some advice about how to do what he's been motivating us to do. In other words, now that he's covered the why of sharing the gospel and making disciples, he's going to give us some advice about the how, about how we can actually get that done. And this morning, the simple bit of advice that he'll give us, keep this in mind right here, this morning the simple bit of advice that Paul is going to give us is that we should learn to keep the main thing the main thing. That should be an important part of our life. Every morning when we wake up, we ought to set that goal again for today. I'm going to keep the main thing the main thing. He'll tell us to stick to the highway and not be wandering off onto side roads that won't ultimately take us to the place where the Spirit of God wants us to go. And as always, we'll be unpacking this passage by reading it aloud together. So if you're able, please stand with me as we read aloud together from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Keep reminding God's people of these things. Warn them before God against quarreling about words. It is of no value and only ruins those who listen. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Thank you. You can take your seats, and as you do, whisper a prayer and and ask God to speak to you through this passage this morning. The story that I want to tell you from God's word this morning is not a very long story, but it is nonetheless a very important story. With that brief background, this is the story from God's word from Judges chapter 3. After Ehud finished his time as a judge in Israel, a man named Shamgar became the judge in Israel. Shamgar struck down 600 Philistines using nothing more than an ox goad, and he too was a man who saved Israel. And that is the story from God's Word. No, really, that's the whole story. That's all there is to the story. It's just a two-sentence story, and Judging by the looks on your faces, maybe we need to pass the offering plates back around again. Some people want their money back. I'm thinking that's the case. I chose to tell you that story because so many of the stories in Judges are are complicated and not very easy to tell. And uh, more than a few actually exceed a PG-13 rating because of the intense violence that happens in those stories. In the book of Judges, God is often punishing his people for their decisions to turn their back on him and uh, and instead of pursuing him and and pursue false gods. And and that's where the violence comes in. One of the reasons that I chose the story of Shamgar is that despite being a short story, it's a story that perfectly illustrates a pattern that happens over and over and over again in the book of Judges. Judges. You see, in Judges, the people of Israel have settled down in the promised land after conquering the promised land in the book of Joshua, after years of warfare, when God used them to push the Canaanites out of Canaan. 
And God did that. He pushed the Canaanites out of Canaan because of the great sin of the Canaanites who continually broke God's law. And they continually broke God's law because they were in the habit of worshiping false gods, of serving false gods instead of worshiping the one true God. Their lack of respect for God, for God's word and God's law led them into lifestyles that brought God's punishment on them. But having said that, we have to add that Israel did not defeat or force all of the Canaanites out of Canaan. And the ones that remained behind were having far more negative influence on the people of Israel than they should have had. And we say that because when the people from Israel mingled with the people that surrounded them, instead of, the, in, instead of Israel influencing the Canaanites for good, the Canaanites influenced Israel to sin. The influence went in the wrong direction. Because of giving in to this ungodly influence, the people from Israel often found themselves way off track and living, literally living godless lives. God would then step in and allow one of the nations that Israel had left behind there in Canaan to overrun Israel and oppress them and even enslave the people from Israel. In other words, Israel was suffering, the people of Israel were suffering the consequences of turning their backs on God as they followed the godless nations that surrounded them. So in their distress and pain, they would call out to Yahweh and beg him, please God, please deliver us, we're sorry. Please deliver us from our oppressors. And God would then respond by raising up a judge. That's where the book gets its name, Judges. God would respond to that by raising up a judge. You know, someone like Gideon or Samson. Those are, those are familiar names. Or like Shamgar, the guy in the story this morning. God would then use the judge to defeat the enemy and restore God's people to the peace that they, uh, that they, that they, they expected because of their lives with him. And then the people of Israel would remain faithful to Yahweh for as long as the judge was alive. But as soon as the judge died, the people would once again turn their backs on Yahweh and serve false gods again. So Yahweh would again raise up an invading army to punish Israel for their sin. And, well, you know the rest. This pattern was repeated over and over and over again. And as I mentioned, the story of Shamgar fits right into that pattern. You may remember that the story begins, you might be able to quote the story, I don't know, but the story begins with the words, after Ehud finished his time as a judge in Israel, a man named Shamgar became the judge in Israel, which is a pretty simple way to start the story. So Ehud, Ehud was the judge in Israel before Shamgar became the judge. But before Ehud, there was another judge named Othniel. These are names that are probably not terribly familiar to you. And all these guys got the judge's job the same way, according to the same pattern that repeats throughout the book of Judges. For example, the story of Othniel, two judges before Shamgar, begins with the words, The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs, the, the false gods that surrounded them. And the story of Ehud the judge right before Shamgar begins with the words, Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. And I want you to notice that there are four verses between verse 7 and verse 12, and I know it sounds like five, but I'm thinking of the verses in between those two. There are four verses between uh, 7 and 12, and in the course of that time, 
Israel went through this same pattern twice. They repeated it over and over again. They turned their backs on God in verse 7, and God punished them by turning them over to the rule of the king of Aram, who oppressed them. So they cried out to the Lord, and that's when God raised up the judge Othniel, that one that was two before Shamgar, who delivered them from their oppression. And Israel pursued Yahweh for as long as Othniel was alive. And as soon as Othniel died, that's where verse 12 comes in into play where it tells of how Israel wandered away from Yahweh again. And this time, God gave Eglon, the king of the Moabites, power over, the, over Israel. And King Eglon invited the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join him as they attacked and enslaved Israel. Once again, Israel is impressed and in pain. I hope I'm not boring you here. But once again, Israel is impressed and in pain. So they cried out to God and God raised up Ehud to deliver them. <clears throat> the story of Ehud is a complicated story, but the land had peace for 80 years after that time. And uh, you never guess how long Ehud actually lived. They had peace, and the first words of the story that I just told you comes, says, after Ehud finished his time as a judge in Israel, a man named Shamgar became the judge in Israel. Now, there's nothing at the beginning of Shamgar's story about Israel turning their backs on the Lord or about the Lord giving the Philistines power over Israel. But by now, we have the pattern firmly in mind. I think the author of Judges realizes he can skip a few things because we already understand how this works. It was the Philippines, Philistines, not the Philippines. It was the Philistines who oppressed Israel during this time. And I know I told a long and complicated story, but perhaps you'll remember how the story ended. Shamgar struck down 600 Philistines using nothing more than an ox goad. And he too was a man who saved Israel. With that pattern in our minds, we have to wonder, listen, since Yahweh was so there, so in the faces of the people of Israel, how is it that they kept turning their backs on Yahweh, who was right there, so that they could instead follow other false gods who were just lurking in the background? I'm asking, how did Israel get so far off track so consistently? Well, that's why I chose to tell the story of Shamgar because two chapters after that story, that very short story of Shamgar, Deborah and Barak became judges in Israel according to the same pattern. And when those two were done delivering Israel, they composed a song together. That's an unusual thing at the end of a battle, but they composed a song together and, uh, in Judges chapter 5. And as a gift to you this morning, I am not going to sing that song to you. But I will show you one of the lyrics that I find so, so interesting. Judges 5, 6 says, In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned. Travelers took winding paths. I think that little gem of a lyric really sums, for, sums up for us how Israel managed to get off course, off track, so often and so consistently in their history particularly during the times of the judges. The highways were right there in their face. And if they had taken to the highway and stayed on the highway, they would have been able to travel together in the right direction and they would not have gotten lost so easily. If they had stuck to the highway and traveled together toward Yahweh, there could have been a lasting peace in Israel all during the times of the judges. But instead... 
they turned away to follow other gods that were not really gods at all. And as Israel wandered those winding paths, they inevitably found themselves lost and separated from Yahweh until Yahweh raised up a judge who would deliver them and get them back to the highway again. And every time I read or study judges, I think to myself, I wish that they had caught on sooner to the truth that their lives would have been so much more simple, so much simpler, so much more peaceful if they had stuck to the Yahweh highway and just refused to take the false God path. If they had done that consistently, things would have been so different for them. I don't know how many of you use GPS. How many of you here use some form of GPS when you're traveling? Oh, wow. That was way more than three people. Um, So it looks like pretty much all of us at one time or another have plugged into a GPS. Uh, I I use GPS all the time, and most of the time, I'm very happy with my GPS, but there comes those moments when after I've driven several hours, it occurs to me that I need to stop for gas, so I put on the blinker, and and I take the next exit. And as soon as I get off the highway, Siri, (laughs) I, I use Apple, Siri begins to have a hissy fit. <laughs> she just does. Uh, now, uh, she calls herself a smartphone, and, and, and you think that being a smartphone, she would know that after driving several hours, there's going to come that moment where you need to stop to put gas in the car and to put other things in the restrooms there in the gas station. And you would expect Siri to know that, but, but she doesn't. And so as soon as you take the exit off the highway, Siri begins to immediately attempt to get you back onto the highway. Right there at the top of the off-ramp, she'll pipe up and say, continue straight on and rejoin the highway. Like, like you idiot. <laughs> we're, we're right stri- There's the highway right down there, bucko. That's what she wants me to do. But you know that the gas station is off to the right, so you turn in that direction, and, and Siri gets even more agitated and says, make a U-turn at the intersection and proceed to the route. But then I make the dreadful mistake of turning into the large gas station parking lot and suddenly Siri doesn't have any idea where I am. Uh, And so now with her agitation off the chart, she begins to chant, proceed to the root, proceed to the root, proceed to the root, proceed to the root. And because of times like that, I've decided to get one of two things for Siri. I'm either going to get her counseling or I'm going to go get her a husband so that she can nag him instead of nagging me. I don't know if any of you have a phone out there that has a male voice on it, but let's talk later. Maybe we can sort something out. But having made fun of Siri and her nagging, I have to say that what Siri does when I get off track is exactly what the Spirit of God did all through the book of Judges. All through the book of Judges. When Israel got off track, the Spirit of God would prompt them to proceed to the root, and come back to Yahweh. But despite the constant attention of the Spirit of God, Judges still says that the highways were abandoned. Travelers took winding paths. So what does that have to do with us this morning? Remember that this morning we're talking about keeping the main thing the main thing. And if you've listened to any of the messages on the books of uh, the books of First and Second Timothy, you know that for months now, the main thing that we've been talking about, well, it's kind of two things together, but the main thing that we've been talking about is sharing a pure and intact gospel with everyone and then discipling those who believe the gospel. Those two things go, have gone hand in hand as the main thing. 
in these two books. In other words, evangelism and discipleship are the main things we've been talking about since we started 1 Timothy at the beginning of last year. Evangelism and discipleship are the highway, the route we should all be following now as we make our way through life. Evangelism is teaching people to believe in Jesus. Discipleship is teaching people to follow Jesus. No more complicated than that. Even though they're the main things, they're quite simple. And here I am this morning reminding you again and sounding very much like Siri as I say, proceed to the root. Proceed to the root. Proceed to the root. Proceed to the root. And I'm doing that again this morning because of what Paul said to Timothy in verse 14. Keep reminding God's people of these things. Warn them before God against quarreling about words. It is of no value and only ruins those who listen. The Spirit of God wants to lead us along the evangelism and discipleship highway that will lead us straight to God and His will for our lives. But too many of us get off track and like travelers taking winding paths, we sit around and we argue about minor doctrines and minor ideas that lack the power to change our lives in any significant way. Every minute that you spend lost on a winding path is a minute that you are not spending making progress on the highway. Every minute that you spend arguing about words is a minute that you are not spending on evangelism and discipleship. And sadly, that minute easily turns into an hour and that hour into a day and that can turn into a lifetime of regret and loss of reward. So I want to remind you this morning to listen to the Spirit of God and proceed to the root. Proceed to the root. Proceed to the root before it's too late. Fill your life with the joy of leading other people to Jesus and teaching them to follow Him because while it's all but certain that there will be moments you'll regret at the end of your life, I can promise you that you will never regret a single minute that you spent teaching other people about Jesus teaching them to follow Jesus. I say that because of what Paul says in verse 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Before I say anything else, I want to draw your attention to those words, do your best. And I want to ask this morning, and I I don't want a show of hands, I want to ask you to think about the last time you did your best. When was the last time you did your best with something? I just want to say that I did my best the other night when I washed dishes after supper. And I can say that because I am especially good at washing forks. Let me just point that out before I go any further. Other people, and I even brought a fork up here and a a dishcloth, other people take the dishcloth and they slide it along the top and bottom of the fork. That's what they do. And uh, and people forget, I think, um, that that's never enough when you're washing forks because we forget sometimes that food particles do collect on the top and the bottom of the fork, but but actually there are a lot more food particles that get stuck in between the tines of the fork. And for that reason, when you wash a fork, you actually have to move your fingers back and forth while you move them up and down, which is something that takes training and 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 quite a bit of practice. But but I, I just I just want to point out that I'm really good at at washing forks, and so if you're not really good at washing forks, you could, I suppose, learn from me. 
So the other night, when I did the dishes, I wanted to do my best as I washed them. So I picked out all the forks, and I did my best to wash them and get them clean. And then I left the rest of the dishes right there in the sink and, and went to watch TV because I had already done my best. I had already done my best. Now, my mom was the one who taught me to do my best when I washed the dishes, and she's been gone for several years now. But, but uh, if she were here to hear what I just said about washing the forks, and if I were to say to her that I wanted to do my best the other night, so I only washed the forks, what do you suppose she would say in response to that? I mean, she knows I'm a fork specialist, right? I think she'd probably say that I had not done my best washing the dishes because I had only washed the forks. And maybe you'd say that too if this was actually a true story. So what am I trying to say? When we don't keep the main thing the main thing and when we major on the minors, we don't ever get to say that we did our best. We don't ever get to say that. So when Paul says here that we should do our best to present ourselves to God as people who are approved, and when he says that we should do our best to present ourselves as workers who don't need to be ashamed because we correctly handle the word of truth, what do you suppose he means by that? Do you suppose that doing our best at correctly handling the word of truth means sitting around arguing and quarreling about minor points from God's word, points that will do nothing to shape our character or build our hearts? Or would correctly handling the word of truth look more like all of us working together to use God's word to teach people the good news about Jesus and then use God's word to teach them how to follow Jesus once they've believed? Which of those two things sounds more like doing your best? Which of those two things up there is just the forks and which is the whole sink of dishes? Which of those two things is the winding path that so many take? And which is the highway that leads us into God's presence and God's approval in our lives? Which of those two things will have you crawling into bed at the end of the day, exhausted but full of joy, because you grabbed hold of the opportunities that God gave you that day to correctly handle the word of truth? Let me say it again. Every minute that you spend lost on a winding path is a minute that you are not spending making progress along the highway. Every minute that you spend arguing about words is a minute that you are not spending on evangelism and discipleship. A few years ago, I made a series of trips to Cambodia during the time that I was on the Asia coordinating team for a mission organization with which we were working at the time. One of the trips to Cambodia, there were three young missionaries with me, all guys, and about half my age. And, and these three guys, and I was, I was in my 40s at that point, so they were in their 20s. I, I, they were not nine-year-olds, and I, I was not 18. They, were, they went along for the trip, and they were all specialists in a variety of fields, schooling and, and things like that. And we were looking into the possibility of the organization coming into Cambodia large-scale, so that we could begin mission work among the unreached tribes of Cambodia. We were there for about 10 days, and we traveled all over that country, mostly in the remote countryside. We were in very few cities, but mostly in the remote countryside where we visited a variety of people groups living in tribal villages well away from the city. On one of the days, 
Our travels took us into what they call a torpedo boat, not because it shoots other boats, but because of how it's shaped. But those windows on the torpedo boat, they were four seats, five seats across, and those windows on the torpedo boat don't open. And so we noted right away as if the boat were to sink while we were going up the river, there would have been no way to get out of the boat, just like there'd be no way to get out of a torpedo if you happen to be in one, which, I, of course, I don't recommend. One of the guys who was traveling with us was claustrophobic and unable to swim, so getting into that boat took about 30 minutes of conversation and a huge leap of faith for him. It was a great exercise. I had no way of reassuring him about his not being able to swim because I knew that if the boat sank, even the people who could swim wouldn't be able to escape. But then the Mekong River became too shallow and, and too rocky to stay in the torpedo boat, so we transferred into a boat that looked like that, which was much more unstable, but at least there were windows that you could jump out of as it tipped over. And on that trip, we went all the way up to Stung Treng, near the Laotian border, way up there at the top of the, the map of Cambodia, uh, because we'd heard that there were unreached people groups, tribal groups up there, and we wanted to go see now, this was in the days immediately following, immediately following the death of Pol Pot. Pol Pot. He died within days of, uh, of our arrival. He was the architect of the killing fields, as you may know. And there were signs posted by the UN along the road to any village that warned you of Khmer Rouge soldiers that had been repatriated to those villages. So entering the village was a point of tension for all of us, knowing that in many of the villages we were going to stay overnight and well, we weren't sure that we would be welcomed by everyone that was there. There were also other signs that indicated dangers of other kinds there in those remote villages. All that to say that getting into a, or entering a village always created tension. Not between us, we didn't argue about things, but we could feel the tension building as the week went on. Some evenings we stayed in the tribal area in any kind of accommodation the chieftain could provide for us and and other evenings, we returned to a rundown hotel, trust me, rundown hotel in Phnom Penh, where we would pray together and plan for the next day. One of the evenings, we decided to spend the next day in the city of Phnom Penh so that we could spend some time uh, visiting government offices to, sit, to try to suss out if what we were thinking about doing was actually legal as far as the Cambodian government was concerned. We also spent part of that day in Phnom Penh touring Sling Prison, which was, uh, it, it's now a museum. It's a place where people were tortured before they were taken to the killing fields, and it's a macabre place to stand, to be, as you stand in places where people were tortured or killed because they were too religious or too educated to fit in with the common people. In any case, it's a heart-rending experience. Back then, it was to visit Phnom Penh, especially in those early days after the death of Pol Pot. Because of all those days of building tension, we decided to end the day in Phnom Penh by having a supper at the Foreign Correspondence Club, which is right there along a dusty road across from the Mekong River. I mean, it's as idyllic and romantic as you can imagine it to be for four guys who are sitting having dinner together. When we settled into order, we noticed that a there, were, uh, there was a couple that, were, that clearly weren't Cambodian. They weren't Asian at all. And they were sitting near enough, us, near enough to us to know that they were speaking English, though not quite near enough for us to hear what they were saying. 
In other words, we could hear their conversation, but we couldn't really hear their conversation, but the bits and pieces we did hear helped us to know that they were British. And I have to tell you, they looked like they'd just lost their best friend. In fact, she broke down and cried several times, truly wept while they were eating, eating supper together there at the table. And perhaps you'll understand what I mean when I say that I just had the feeling that I should say something to them. I wasn't sure what to do, so I took the liberty of ordering dessert for them. The restaurant had a highly recommended chocolate cake, so I ordered two pieces and sent it their way, thinking that chocolate might be just the right thing for a crying woman. And yeah, I know that's sexist, but I stand by what I just said. When the waiter delivered the dessert, they were, of course, surprised as they sat over there, but he indicated to them that our table had sent that their way, and their confused looks told me that it would be okay for me to just go up and say hello. So I went over to their table, and I said hello, and I asked them if they were okay and in unison. They said no, not at all. So I told them that I was a good listener and... and, and uh, and, and because their table was only a table for two, I invited them to come over to our table and join us. And as they came and settled in and sat down with their chocolate cake in hand, that's where the story came out. They were indeed British. She had been in medical school for years and years and years and finally had finished and uh, she was planning to take her boards. And as she was planning to take her boards, it also occurred to them, we should go somewhere really crazy. When I pass the boards, we'll, go and, you know, we'll be able to go and celebrate. And, and Cambodia came to mind for whatever reason. I don't know. I, I mean, it's an amazing place. But, but uh, we plan to celebrate here in Cambodia. And, and then I took the boards. And uh, her voice was very broken at this point, And she said, I, I didn't pass. And so we, we didn't know... What to do? We didn't know whether we should come to Cambodia. Or we, we didn't know if we should just change our plans, and we're still not sure that we made the right choice in coming to Cambodia. I, uh, I listened to the whole story without interrupting them. And when they trailed off with that, we're, we're not sure, maybe we shouldn't have come to Cambodia, but we didn't know what else to do. I told them that I believed that they had made the right choice in coming to Cambodia. And then I told them that I didn't believe in coincidences. And that led me to believe that God himself had brought them to Cambodia and to the Foreign Correspondence Club on that night so that they could talk to me. As you, uh, as you might guess, that got their attention and they, they followed that statement with a very British, whatever do you mean? <laughs> We're here to talk to, God brought us here to talk to, and I, I could see the, who the heck do you think you are in their eyes? But I took that question, whatever do you mean, as permission to tell them about the thing that is the most important thing in my life. I can also tell you that I didn't argue about words, and I didn't major on the minors, and I didn't take to traveling, winding paths by God's grace. I took the highway straight into their hearts and told them the bad news first, just as we heard this morning. They were sinners, just like all of us, and they were destined to be punished by God because of their sin, just like all of us. And then I told them the good news about Jesus and his finished work on their behalf, that they were supposed to be punished for their sin, but Jesus was punished in their place, that they were supposed to die for their sin, but Jesus had died for them. And to make a long story short, they both 
They both trusted Christ as their Savior that evening, right there in the Foreign Correspondence Club, across from the Mekong River in Phnom Penh. They thought that they'd come to Cambodia for a vacation, but discovered in reality that God had brought them to Cambodia so that he could introduce himself to them. That's why. I will never forget that night and the privilege that I had to share Christ with two people who were so ready to hear about what Jesus had done for them. But I will also not forget that night because of those three young men who were with me there in the Foreign Correspondence Club and who watched all of that unfold. I can tell you quite truthfully that I have never seen three young men who were more enthusiastic and excited than they were to have been involved in all of that. And those, those two hours there in the Foreign Correspondence Club in Phnom Penh, I'm sure that they didn't react to the, their team winning the Super Bowl or anything as powerfully as they did that night. They were so pumped as we walked home to that rundown hotel. Before we slept that evening, we, pl- we prayed together with more intensity than we prayed on any other night that we had spent there in Cambodia. God had used us, and we did our best to present ourselves to him as workmen who did not need to be ashamed, who correctly handled the word of truth. Now, I know that we're all human, and that means that there are days when we have to slink and and skulk our way into bed at the end of the day because we're ashamed of something that we did during the day. But instead, can you imagine? Can you dream about being able to slip into bed at the end of every day and being able to honestly say to the Father, Father, today, to the best of my ability, I did what you asked me to do. Today, to the best of my ability, I was the person you designed me to be. Because today, I told people the good news about Jesus and taught them to follow him. Today, I refused to travel by winding paths and chose instead to get on and stay on the highway that leads to your presence and to your approval. Today, I correctly handled the word of truth. And today, I did my best to present myself to you tonight as one who does not need to be ashamed. And God, right now, I'm going to close my eyes and get some rest. But I'm looking forward to waking up in the morning so I can travel the highway with you again tomorrow for your glory and for my good. Wouldn't that be a great way to end the day tonight? Wouldn't that be a great way to end the day tomorrow and in the days to come? Wouldn't you love to stay on the highway instead of taking to winding paths? Well, then we all might consider taking Paul's advice to heart this morning. So in closing, let me read the passage to you one more time. Keep reminding God's people of these things. Warn them before God of quarreling about words. It is of no value, and it only ruins those who listen. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Will you stand with me in the presence?
Father and our God, I trust that you've connected with each heart in the way that you intended to connect this morning. God, I, I know that we all have stories to tell of moments when moments when we leaned in, when we got out of the highway to somebody's heart and told them about you. And God, if we don't have stories like that to tell, give us stories like that to tell. And help us to understand that you open the door to opportunities almost on a daily basis. Opportunities that, we, that you give us to just say something to correctly handle the word of truth. Pray, God, that you teach us to be that more and more. That we would keep the main thing the main thing so that we can crawl into bed at the end of every day and say, God, to the best of my ability, I was the person you designed me to be. You called me to be. God, help us not to focus on all those times that we, we mess up. Help us not to be, to be worn out by what we don't get right. And help us to do our best to get it right to focus on the opportunities that we have to do the right thing instead of wearying ourselves with running away from the wrong thing. God, by your grace, we want to we be approved of you, by you. We want to correctly handle the word of truth. Lead us in that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we're heading out those doors, and, and I, I, I just want to say, uh, again, that probably, I hope, that, that you're not sitting there saying, well, what, you know, what does he want us to do this week? I hope that you've, you've caught the vision. You've caught the vision for what it could mean to just engage in conversation out there with people because you never know. You never know whether those people might have been waiting to hear what you have to say. And the moment is just perfect because God has brought them your way in that moment. And, you know, if you ever see me sitting at another table and you want to order two pieces of chocolate cake for me, I'd be good with that too. Ready? Go get them, Potter's House. <laughs>